1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Algerians will take to the streets again today. They're protesting against the re election campaign of a president who hasn't been heard from since he had a stroke nearly six years ago. Why are Algerians at last taking a stand? And why is it that sometimes things actually improve when a country's head is incapacitated? In Britain, knife crime is on the rise. Deaths by stabbing hit an all-time high last year. The causes aren't entirely clear, and the potential solutions are the subject of some debate and political discomfort. First up, though, In Algeria, the broad streets of the blue and white painted capital, Algiers, are expected to fill with protesters today.
2: <inaudible>
1: Dalia Ghanem is a political analyst who was also demonstrating recently, along with her mother, her aunt, and her cousins.
3: Uh, what they are calling for is very focused, it's very clear. No to the fifth term of President Abdelaziz Bouteflika.
1: President Bouteflika has ruled the country since 1999, when he was credited with helping to end a bloody civil war. But in 2013, he had a stroke. He hasn't spoken in public since. When it was announced that Mr. Bouteflika would stand for a fifth term in next month's election, some took it as an insult. Many Algerians are poor and unemployed and feel the country has been badly run.
3: It's people who are you know, calling for their dignity back. Uh, They've been run by a person who has been extremely sick, unable to walk, unable to talk. So Algerians are fed up with that.
1: Because the president seems incapacitated, Algerians often complain that they have no way of knowing who exactly is running the country. What they do know is that an elite group has become rich by winning government contracts paid for by the country's oil wealth. So far, Mr. Bouteflika, or whoever is holding his pen, has shown no sign of stepping down.
2: Mr. Bouteflika, or more likely someone in his coterie, wrote a letter that was read out on state television in which he promised that if he won this election, he would hold a national conference and then eventually hold another election, which he would not contest. Roger McShane is our Middle East editor. And it seems like the protesters are not satisfied with this response. You mentioned this coterie of people. Who is actually running the country? Yeah, so Bouteflika has been out of action for many years now, and real power rests with a cabal of mostly generals and businessmen, and they seem to have been caught completely flat-footed by these protests. So in this run-up to the
1: election and this resistance then to Mr. Bouteflika running again, who could people vote
2: for instead of him? Well, the big opposition groups haven't fielded candidates and Bouteflika's main opponent in the last election isn't running. There's a retired army general who's been critical of the government who is perhaps the most viable opposition candidate. Uh, But my favorite candidate is a man named uh, Rashid Nakaz, who is a French-Algerian businessman. He's run for president of France before. Uh, He was banned from running for president of Algeria because he's a dual national but he has enlisted his cousin, a car mechanic who shares the same name, to run for him. Uh, and if he wins, he will cede power to the other Rashid Nakaz, which is all to say that there really is no viable opposition candidate to Mr. Buttiflicka.
1: Okay. And in the meantime,
2: there are these ongoing protests. Do you, do you foresee the end of the regime here? I do think that is is on his way out and is very unlikely to serve a fifth term. But if we're talking about the regime more generally, this cabal of generals and businessmen I've, I've spoken of, I think they're less likely to go in the short term. So
1: this is, this is an attempt at a fifth term from,
2: uh, from Mr. Bouteflika. This has been going on already for some time. Why is this the moment for, for real unrest? Well, I think part of the explanation for why it hasn't happened until now is because Algeria has a history of violence that is still fresh in many people's minds. The last free and fair parliamentary election it held in 1991 uh, was won by Islamists, and then the army canceled the the rest of the election. That led to a brutal civil war over the course of a decade where nearly 200,000 Algerians were killed. Fast forward to the Arab Spring. The reason why things didn't pop off then is because the government, rich with oil and gas revenue, was able to buy obedience with government subsidies, with government jobs, and with handouts. Today, it's much less able to do so. The price of oil has gone way down. It's running enormous fiscal deficits. It simply cannot afford to provide the same subsidies, the same government jobs. It simply cannot afford to buy obedience the way it did in the past. And so you're seeing people who are angry, angry about being unemployed, angry about an unresponsive government, angry about this farce of having a man who's nearly dead as their president. Um, and they're just fed up. And to your mind, what's, what's the right way out of this then? What should happen? Well, I think something along the lines of Mr. Buttigieg's plan needs to happen. But I think the first thing that needs to happen is that he needs to, to go or, or at least uh, say that he's not going to be running for this fifth term. Then an, the idea of a national conference is actually uh, quite a good one. Opposition groups who have been constantly harassed by the authorities need time to organize. And then you can have a new election that is genuinely free and fair. Roger, thanks very much. Thank you.
1: It could be that Mr. Butoflika's condition won't preclude him from a fifth term in office. But it got us wondering, when else in history have leaders remained in place despite barely having a pulse or being otherwise incapacitated? And
4: what effect did that have on the countries they were supposed to be running? Is it better for a bad ruler to be comatose and therefore doing fewer bad things? Robert Guest is our foreign editor. Is it possible that a nearly dead dictator is slightly less bad than an active and vigorous one? That sparked a conversation in the office. So when you asked this question to the editorial team here at The Economist,
1: what kinds of examples did you get?
4: Well, we found many examples where the poor health of the leader was actually bad for the country for a variety of reasons. Possibly it sparked infighting among those who wished to succeed him. Possibly it meant that someone else was actually pulling the strings from behind the scenes. And sometimes, like in North Korea, where Kim Il-sung has been the uh, eternal president despite having died in 1994,
2: his ideas still govern the country and make it miserable. You can take your pick of geriatric leaders in the Arab world. Saudi Arabia has long been ruled by elderly kings. Uh, The current one, King Salman, is 83 years old and fading, and he's transferred much of his power to his son, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince. And this is creating some problems. He started a war in Yemen, uh, he's locked up dissidents, and he's locked up a number of princely rivals in order to ensure that when his father does pass away, he will become king. Woodrow Wilson was president of the United States during World War I and afterwards campaigned for the U.S. to enter the League of Nations, toured around the country and exhausted himself so thoroughly that when he came back to Washington, he suffered a very serious stroke. For about six months afterwards, he was incapacitated. The left side of his body was paralyzed and access to him was completely controlled by his doctor and his wife, which was a pretty lousy way to run the country.
4: In some cases, having a nearly dead leader has actually been quite good for countries. The current president of Nigeria, Mohamed Buhari, is a well-meaning man, but doesn't really understand how the economy works. He's also very old, and when he's sick and away from medical treatment, you find that his deputy president runs the country and tends to run it rather better. It's only when the treatment kicks in and Buhari gets better that we see foolish policies coming in, like a ban on the importation of toothpicks.
3: In 1975, the Spanish dictator Franco was lying extremely ill in the Prado and it seemed that Spain was frozen in time as long as he stayed there without moving. What we didn't know was that Spain was gradually opening up, the press was becoming freer, unions were beginning to get more power, so in fact the long illness allowed it to begin to revive.
2: In the 1980s, when the Soviet leaders started dying one after another in very rapid succession, the whole thing became known as the hearse race. They were racing each other to the grave. When Konstantin Chernyanko, the last general secretary of that generation, came to power, people joked that he gained office without gaining consciousness. The bad thing was they were completely senile, and being run by senile leaders was a great humiliation. But on the other hand, they were so decrepit that they could do only very limited damage to their country and to the outside world.
3: So Mobutu Sese Seko, who ruled Congo badly for 32 years, until 1997, towards the end of his reign, he was very ill with prostate cancer. And partly as a result, he spent most of his time in his jungle... Palace over a thousand miles from the capital, Kinshasa. This made it easier for rebel soldiers to march on the capital, and Mobutu fled a moment before his palace was ransacked. He was a terrible leader and he completely ran Congo into the ground, and so it was a good thing that they finally managed to oust him, partly as a result of taking advantage of his weakened state.
4: There is also the case of Zimbabwe, which was ruled since its independence in 1980 by Robert Mugabe, who for most of that period kept A firm grip, not just on the country, but on his party with Machiavellian skill. But towards the latter years of his rule, he began to lose his grip. In 2015, he stood up in Parliament and gave a 25-minute-long State of the Nation speech. A few months later, he stood up and gave the exact same speech – In cabinet meetings, he would sit down and wait for colleagues to arrive, forgetting that he'd fired them some months before. Uh, And all of this perhaps led to an opportunity for people within the party to start contemplating getting rid of him and uh, moving Zimbabwe towards reform. Sometimes in history, the truth was hidden from the people. And in one case, we found the truth was kept from the leader himself. In Portugal, there was Antonio de Oliveira Salazar, who was Prime Minister from 1932 to 1968. And he had a debilitating stroke in 1968. And while he was comatose, he was replaced as Prime Minister. Uh, But apparently, nobody ever got around to telling him. And he did regain consciousness and died two years later. And it is widely believed that for all that time, he thought he was still in control. He thought he was still uh, ruling, as he thought, benignly over the country that he controlled for so long. But he wasn't.
1: From all these examples, did, did you see any patterns, draw any conclusions about the
4: um, proximity to death and heads of state and government? The first thing is that the health of the head of government is something that the people need to know about. It's something that they have a right to know. Uh, Secondly, it's a bad idea to vest so much power in the person in charge of the country that it creates a power vacuum if, if they're incapacitated.
1: Robert, thanks very much for your time. Thank you.
0: What's next in innovation? That's not the right question.
1: If you're enjoying The Intelligence, try The Economist Asks, our sister interview podcast. Today is International Women's Day, and in this week's episode, Anne McElvoy talks to Christine Lagarde, the head of the International Monetary Fund, about her advice for women in the workplace. First of all, Close ranks with other women, you know, join forces and, and unity is always stronger than, than being isolated. And it's true that it's, it's a world where sometimes we women can feel a bit isolated, but there's always another woman and sometimes another man to reach out and to, uh, to, to make the case that we have so much to contribute and we can so much improve both the workplace and the bottom line that we have to do that. And, you know, no compromise, no compromise and never give up. The Economist Asks is out every Thursday. In much of the world, violence is synonymous with guns. But in Britain, these weapons are strictly controlled. Criminals who want to arm themselves do so with knives. While Britain has historically had a low violent crime rate compared with, for instance, America, the number of crimes carried out with a knife rose to 40,000 last year. In the year to last March, 285 people were fatally stabbed in the UK, the highest level since records began. And a growing number of victims are in their teens. A young man was stabbed to death in London yesterday, the latest to die in a wave of violence. Two teenagers were murdered at the weekend. Violent crime feels like it's on
3: the up. Knife crime is almost certainly on the up.
0: There have been more than 50 homicides in London in 2018, with many of the Friday, victims young people. Jodie Chesney them killed
3: them in a knife attack violence. in an East London park as she played music with her friends. She was 17. Youssef Mackie stabbed to death in a village near Altrincham. Everyone deserves to live. Everyone
4: deserves to, live. Everyone deserves to
1: live. Officials, police, and parents are calling for action. So, what's causing the big upswing in knife crime, and what can realistically be done about it. Politicians have differing views. Theresa May, the prime minister, promised a renewed focus on the problem.
3: Mr. Speaker, I will be holding a summit in number 10 in the coming days to bring together ministers, community leaders, agencies and others. And I will also be meeting with the victims of these appalling crimes to listen to their stories and to explore what more we can do as a whole society to tackle this problem.
1: Home Secretary Sajid Javid insisted there was no easy
4: answer. We all wish that there was one thing, just one, that we could do to stop this violence. But there are no shortcuts. There is no one single solution.
1: But at least some of the blame for the increase in violence has been placed on a reduction in the number of police officers. In the northern city of Liverpool at a sports center where teenagers play football outside, youth worker Alan
2: Walsh has seen the effects firsthand. This is the first time in 26 years as a youth worker I've actually witnessed young people asking for more police and more stop and searches because of knife crime and the scared of what the knife crime is. The
1: number of police officers in Britain has fallen by about 20,000 since austerity measures were introduced after the 2008 financial crisis.
2: It's very frustrating because you you know that that just by taking that little bit of authority off the streets, you're setting young people up to fail. Another
1: reason that crime has become more violent is a change in the way drug dealing works. A term that's widely used is county lines.
5: What we mean when we say county lines is the process whereby a criminal gang or individual will travel to a different area outside of the major urban city and set up a base in which to sell drugs from.
1: Grace Robinson is a criminologist who studies crime and young people in Liverpool. She says the drugs market in cities has tightened as cocaine in particular has become cheap and plentiful. So now there's competition to sell drugs in the provinces.
5: In order to protect themselves whilst working in county lines, young people have to arm themselves with weapons such as knives.
1: But it's not just drug dealers who are armed. Carrying a knife has become more and more common, as Ms Robinson found when interviewing children who had been expelled from school.
5: Every one of these young people that I spoke to had at some point carried a weapon, and some of them continued to carry weapons such as knives and their reasoning was basically because they they knew that every other young person in the area was also arming themselves with knives, and they didn't want to be the ones caught without one.
1: British politicians disagree over how to stop teenagers from carrying knives. Boris Johnson, London's former mayor, called this week for an expansion in police powers to stop and search. He said the approach had brought down violence during his tenure – Meanwhile, London's current mayor, Sadiq Khan, has called for a different approach. More alternatives for young people, such as social services, after-school clubs, and improved mental health care.
3: Stop and Search has had a bit of a chequered history. There were lots of complaints that it was singling out minority communities and that young, um, black, poor people were being unfairly, overly targeted. Tom Rowley is a Britain reporter at The Economist. He's traveled all over the country looking
1: at the causes of crime and thinking about possible solutions.
3: So Theresa May, when she was Home Secretary, was particularly sympathetic to this complaint and asked police to cut back quite dramatically the use of the power. Um, Police argue that this was unfortunate because it was at just the same time that they were actually getting rather better at using it and using it in a more targeted way. In the last few years, for example, the Metropolitan Police has rolled out body cam footage right across cops and, and they found that complaints have dramatically fallen since then about the misuse of this power.
1: Right, but what about the, the potential correlation then between the, the reduction in its use um, and the rise in knife crime?
3: I think it's, um, it's very easy for uh, causation and correlation to get confused in this particular instance. It, it's true that there has been a dramatic drop in the use of stop and search just at the same time as there has been a big rise in particularly serious violence and knife crime. Um, but there are very few studies that have conclusively shown a link between the two things. So, the the police are
1: facing kind of, uh, well, all kinds of challenges. Um, First of all, there being fewer of them, um, and this change in the way drug networks work and so on. When when you talk to police, what do they think the
3: policy should be? Some of them would simply like a lot more money. Um, They reckon uh, more cops on the beach will uh, increase the deterrent factor. Others of them are a little bit more savvy about it and have noticed that the way the political wind has been blowing and that for example under Theresa May victim based crime was a huge focus, things like modern slavery or child sexual exploitation and so um, there's an argument that their focus on those things has perhaps um, forced them not to concentrate on things like drugs quite as much as they might have done and that that might have caused this uptick.
1: There's been a discussion this week in,
3: in Britain about police numbers.
1: What, how do you see that going?
3: It's a tricky one for Theresa May. Um, she's been Prime Minister for three years now, but before then, her job was Home Secretary. And it seems like a lot of the things that she did then are coming back to bite her now. One of them is police numbers. Um, she was very tough on the police during her time as Home Secretary, um, wanting them to be reformed, but also massively cutting the numbers of, of cops. Um, now she's under pressure, not just from the opposition Labour Party, but also from many within her own party, to um, roll back a little bit. Sajid Javid has said, who is the Home Secretary, has said that we must listen to the police when they call for greater resources. It, it's likely that uh, their numbers will start edging up slowly again. Um, but it's not the case as the, the Chancellor has confirmed that the funding caps are suddenly going to be turned back on. So what what are the
1: constraints then um, in Britain's politics right now on, on making decisions about these kinds of thorny
3: questions? Uh, well, right now, uh, as you know, Jason, it's Brexit, 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 um, which is, makes—is there anything else? <laughs> no, which makes making decisions about anything else fiendish. Um. Uh, and also getting money out of the Treasury, very difficult. Um, it comes after uh, all these sort of nightmarish scenarios for the economy over Brexit, but also after years and years of austerity politics in Britain. The governing Conservative Party has been presiding over that since 2010. Um, and Mrs. May has been at the forefront of it all that time. So uh, that makes the politics of this quite difficult. She's going to be you know, quite um, reluctant to, to eat a lot of humble pie over this. Where do you see this trend? What do you think should be done? Some people say uh, it's all about just giving the police more powers and allowing them to increase stop and search, giving them some more money. Other people who are more liberal say that it's um, just about giving the council some more money so that they can expand social services and take a more preventative approach. The trouble with that one is that though there is evidence that it might well be very mo- much more successful in the long term, it is in the long term. It will take years and years to achieve that payoff. Politicians work on, as you know, on a, on a much smaller and shorter timescale, and they will be under a lot of pressure to act now. Um, it's like Likely, therefore, that we're going to see some headline grabbing measures on this sometime soon. Tom, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. You can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com/slash radio offer. Twelve issues for twelve dollars or twelve pounds. See you back here on Monday.